This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. We're here at the Bundesbank Guest House with Charlie Evans, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us here at the Bundesbank. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be here. Uh, give us your read on the economy and latest Fed decision making. You had a pretty interesting last Fed meeting where you had some po- policymakers want to keep rates same, some wanted to cut them more. What's your read of the economy and policy today? Right, yeah, no, it was a very interesting meeting. I would say that, uh, you know, in my opinion, the economy is doing uh, still uh, quite well. Um, I would say fundamentals are solid and the consumer continues to show strength. The labor market's been quite strong uh, for some time. The unemployment rate is 3.7%. That's uh, very low, uh, historically speaking, and I think that's a great sign. The consumer seems um, reasonably confident. Uh, there's been a little volatility in confidence in the indexes lately, uh, but but I'd say they're an important source of strength. Now, the business sector has been uh, weaker. Uh, I think uncertainty over foreign growth and uh, trade uh, discussions has sort of made businesses kind of uh, go into pause mode, wonder about how to uh, deploy uh, their capital and, and, and do investments. So, but, you know, putting all of that together, I'm looking for growth this year to be two and a quarter percent. Um, we're decelerating to trend growth. I take I put trend at one and three quarters percent. So this is good economic growth and inflation is uh, a little less than our 2% objective, it's been less than our objective down as low as one and a half a few months ago, but now it's moved up closer in 1.8%. So seems to be moving towards 2%. I worry about inflation. We need to get it up to two and, and even above that. But you know, that's sort of the take on where the economy going. In, in that context, I see appropriate monetary policy is just a little bit less than a neutral setting so that we can provide some accommodation. It's interesting thinking if if the trend is one and three quarters and this year's 225, we're a little bit above trend, but we still need accommodation. Is that just the uncertainty going on or that we just aren't going to stay at this above trend growth? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty as to what the, you know, the natural, the trend, uh, you know, uh, you know, federal, sorry, uh, the neutral federal funds uh, rate is, I think that we should confidently be below uh, that neutral setting. And so, you know, I think one and three quarters to 2% for the target range of the funds rate is accommodative. Um, we do have growth at uh, above a, a trend growth, but it's very close and it's decelerating. I think it's a very mature expansion. And so I'm pretty comfortable with how the economy is performing. Unemployment rates 3.7% against many estimates of the natural rate of unemployment. This is uh, below that. That doesn't really bother me. Um, I, I 
you know, I kind of think that, um, you know, our, our objective is maximum employment. It's hard to actually describe what maximum employment is. And unemployment being below my assessment of sort of the sustainable rate sort of shifts the emphasis to, well, what are the inflationary implications? Is inflation taking off? Yeah. And in fact, it's the other way around. Inflation is a bit light. So um, I think in that environment, that's why the accommodation plus risk management on, you know, the, the economic downsides that we're looking at, that, that's why accommodation seems appropriate. Yeah, with Professor Jeremy Siegel, we just talked to James Bullard about this exact question about what is the natural rate of unemployment, and, and Siegel was pushing on is four. Why does the Fed say the natural rate is four percent when we are below? And Bullard was emphasizing he thinks that there's no feed through, like that this fills curves translation between unemployment being less than the natural rate just doesn't matter for inflation. Is that? Is that your read of the situation? So I've heard that. I, I, I listened to the podcast. It was very interesting. I've, I've heard that uh, discussion uh, in other contexts yeah. as well from other colleagues. And, you know, I sort of fall back on uh, Janet Yellen's uh, statement of uh, the inflation, um, you know, equation, roughly speaking, you know, which is, yeah, there's a Phillips curve effect there that, you know, resource slack is, is going to be important for determining inflationary. Um, direction and temporary price adjustments are things that we should be able to look through. Um, and then there's inertia and the history of inflation, but it's also inflation expectations. And inflation expectations, um, in my opinion, are uh, somewhat uh, below our 2% symmetric uh, objective. I don't think they're consistent with uh, the 2% symmetric objective. And so I think we need to do take actions in order to provide confidence that we're going to hit our 2% yeah. symmetric inflation objective. And so I think more accommodation there. If we were, you know, if the economy was running very hot, if wages were responding more strongly, I would tend to expect that price pressures would pick up, but we don't seem to be seeing that strong wage growth. And it doesn't seem that businesses are increasing prices dramatically either. So in this environment, I think uh, more accommodation uh, is helpful. Uh, inflation of two and a quarter percent, even up to two and a half percent, I would say is not inconsistent with our symmetric yeah. uh, desire. And so I think actually overshooting would be a good thing. So how, you know, that's that's one of those scenarios that you want to see this overshoot. Like how long could you let it overshoot once you start getting that objective hit? Two and a half percent for a few years? Is that or is it? Well, I think, um, you know, I, it, it's going to depend on the circumstances. I think that could be um, uh, appropriate and fine. Um, I think that symmetry to me means that we ought to be averaging 2% over a long period of time. Um, you know, we've had a discussion about, well, this is a going forward averaging, isn't it? Uh, or is it a include uh, back makeup for past undershoots because we have undershot? That would be more of a price level targeting type of regime or something in between that. And, you know, I would say that our long run framework discussions have uh, – sort of pointed us to uh, talking about the merits of that. At our Fed Listens conference in Chicago, there was uh, one or two presentations that talked about those uh, mechanisms, uh, perhaps. But I think that that points us to the idea that if, if we're going to be symmetric, you could be above 2% half the time and below 2% half the time. Uh, we have been down to 1% for some period of time, one one and a quarter percent, two and a half would be consistent with that behavior above that. I think a lot of people are probably concerned that we don't have a lot of experience with inflation above 2% without it sort of going higher than that. But 
it's also the case that we haven't experienced anything like that in a new era with anchored lower inflation expectations. And so I think uh, 2.5%, if we saw it, if the forecasts were for no more than that, controlled inflation coming down eventually to 2%, I think that would be consistent with our symmetry assumption. Is there anything special about 2% as where the line is for it to be symmetrical? Well, 2% is what we said. We put a lot of effort into putting our long-run statement together, getting a consensus on that. So 2% is what we said we should deliver symmetrically, and that's what today we should be doing. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, one of the big questions that people focus on is where is the ultimate, you know, we were talking about with the trend growth being above the sort of longer-run trend growth. What is, in your sense, the neutral rate of policy where it's not too hot, not too accommodative? Where do you think that new neutral policy rate is for the Fed? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, um, you know, this requires sort of breaking this down between, um, you know, what you think the neutral real rate is, what inflation is. So inflation, we should be aiming for 2%. Uh, Neutral real rate, uh, Loback and Williams have estimates of that. There's uncertainty around it. You know, my own assessment is premised on an estimate of three quarters of a percent. So I've got a long run neutral Fed funds rate of two and three quarters percent. Could be half a point really on the real rate. There's uncertainty bands that are larger than that. And so I think you have to take that with a grain of salt and try to see where you think inflation's actually headed. Um, you know, that's why at the moment I would kind of shoot, you know, a little bit south of any assessment. Of, of our long-run neutral. I also think that the headwinds are sort of of a temporary short-run variety, and so I would make a distinction between a short-term real rate, which is lower than my long-run rate, and so that's another reason to think that we need to definitely err on the lower side to make sure that we're accommodative, if that's what the objective of policy is, which I think it is and should be. And, you know, we're here in Europe. There's low rates around the world. Um, as you think about the, what could make, you know, that even at 275, that's lower than what the Fed used to say was sure. the neutral rate closer to four. And they've been ticking it down, ticking it down, ticking it down. Professor Siegel thinks they're going to keep ticking it down closer to two. Um, but what do you think is the main drivers of low real rates around the world? You know, as you think about this, and um, obviously, you know, monetary policy has been more accommodative. Uh, You know, central bank balance sheets are larger than uh, they've ever been before. And so that's uh, reduced uh, term premium somewhat. That has to have some downward effect on long-term rates. But, you know, it's also the case that when you're successful with accommodated monetary policy, the real interest rate longer term ought to be rising to reflect stronger growth and whatnot. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to, to disentangle these features. I think um, on a longer term basis, like what you're asking, I think that, uh, you know, there's an intense appetite for safe assets, um, you know, and that's why, you know, the German bond is uh, so low and, uh, you know, the Japanese long term interest rate and the U.S. 10 year treasury rate is extremely low. And in part, that's driven by this appetite for uh, safe assets. And there's a, you know, large demand for that, even in an environment where, um, you know, the um, administration has embarked on tax reform and tax cuts, which allow uh, the the national debt to increase by one and a half trillion dollars over a 10 year period. And you would expect, uh, you know, bond, uh, you know, financing to be increasing. Long term interest rates are still low. So there's an intense desire for uh, safe assets. 
and the Fed st stopped their expanding mode, started doing quantitative tightening, and the rates just drop. You would have thought that less purchases rolling off the balance sheet, maybe we'd see rate pressure, but nope. It's a reminder that there's so many determinants for financial market uh, prices and long-term interest rates. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so that's why the challenge of trying to uh, um, calibrate and assess how um, effective our, our asset purchases have been um, you know, it's, it's very challenging because it's taking place in the context of other shocks that are, you know, ramping interest rates up or down. And so we, we talked about, you mentioned the German boon being super low and, and, and actually negative and negative across the curve. What do you think about negative policy rates generally? Is that, I mean, that's not something they taught in the textbooks back before they could go negative. Do you believe this negative policy has been impactful, helpful? Is it something you would consider for the Fed? Yeah, so th it, this has been a very challenging uh, discussion uh, topic. And, you know, my memory is it never really gained much traction, even the discussion, you know, within the, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, early days during the financial crisis and when we were contemplating, uh, you know, the first, uh, you know, um, LSAPs, uh, QE1, um, you know, and all the uh, one and three quarters trillion uh, MBS that we bought, uh, agency debt and treasury. So um, at some point, it's kind of like, oh, we're at zero on the funds rate. Could you go negative? And you kind of go, well, optimal uh, control exercises tell me that if I could go negative, we probably should be going to minus 4%. Uh, Taylor rule would kind of take you uh, very low also. But you kind of think that's not feasible. Um, and the negative rates that have been implemented are like, 10 basis point minus 10 minus 50 basis points. And so, you know, not very large, but an indication that, uh, you know, we intend to be accommodated for quite a long time and we're doing everything. I think the signaling impact might be uh, stronger than the actual uh, 40, 50 basis points. Um, but I, I think that when you find yourself at the zero lower bound, thinking about future policies and in the U.S., um, I don't sense a great appetite among anybody I've talked to for considering negative rates in the U.S. My own view is that uh, we need to communicate uh, very loudly, very persistently, that when we're uh, facing under uh, underrunning inflation uh, for a long period of time, the economy's not doing well, we need to indicate we're going to do whatever it takes uh, from a monetary policy standpoint in order to get the economy back and inflation up, and uh, we're not going to stop until we get there. Uh, I refer to that as outcomes-based monetary policy, and you just got to keep going. If negative rates in Europe and in Japan help get that message across, um, if there's um, more aversion to increasing the size of their balance sheet, although they've increased their balance sheet quite a lot, and especially re relative to their own economies, you might do that. But uh, you know, that's—I don't think that's a, a hot topic at the moment in the U.S. Now, with their negative rates, does that though spill over for you as a U.S. policymaker consideration? Like, is is their negative rates impacting just the global rates lower, such that you have to consider what they're doing here as, and how does it factor into your decision making? You know, I think we're always, you know, being mindful of how strong or weak um, other country economies are, what the implications that has for um, our export potential, um, how much we're importing, what that uh, the net effect is on uh, aggregate demand in the U.S., um, whether or not 
um, you know, a central bank is pursuing more asset purchases in order to get inflation up or negative rates. Um, it's not the first thing I think about. I suppose, you know, perhaps, um, you know, on the supervisory side, if there were a financial stability reason why some, you know, but it was, it's something to be mindful of. It's not, you know, something to kind of go, oh, we all we all undertake the actions that we do for the best interests of our own country and uh, hoping that it has uh, positive spillovers for uh, the rest of the world economy. Now, on the risk side of the equation, people have been worried about what's been going on in the repo market, the sort of jitters that's happened over there. It sort of settled down towards the end of, of last week. Do you any commentary on what was happening in that repo market for people who are seeing all the headlines and and worries there? Um, yeah, that's uh, been a very interesting, um, you know, an important development. So we, you know, we always, you know, realize that with our large balance sheet and our, you know, longer term, um, you know, interest in getting, uh, you know, the right size balance sheet, once we were going forward, um, you know, we had been uh, renormalizing uh, short-term policy interest rates towards neutral, um, getting the balance sheet to the right level. And we were going to have to figure out uh, what the appropriate size of the balance sheet is, what uh, we made a decision that we would uh, support an ample reserves uh, regime. And so, you know, there should be uh, plenty abundant reserves so that financial markets can work without... Um, creating volatility in our short-term policy rate, so the funds rate staying within our target range. So first and foremost, we're always interested in being able to implement the monetary policies that are important for our strategy. Now, there are other short-term money market rates as well. And when you make a choice that you have one policy rate to target, you've got one target, and then there, the market is going to determine what else happens. And so like when as uh, quarter end uh, approaches for the third quarter, as tax payments all of a sudden divert reserves out of the banking system for some temporary uh, time period while these payments are being made. The question is, um, gosh, if we hit uh, the part of the reserve demand where it's, there's more scarcity, or is this just something temporary, which was a blip, and you wouldn't have been able to, to realize that? Um, I think that you know, I, I think that the Fed, I think the New York Fed responded quickly um, and, you know, provided uh, term funding in order to get over the quarter end. I think that the committee is going to have to be thinking about a little more. We've always been careful. And so I think judging what ample, you know, really is. And, uh, you know, if that requires a little bit more of a buffer, uh, these are questions that we'll have to be, uh, you know, thinking about. Some kind of long-term facility that that do you guys worry about the, the perception of expanding the balance sheet through these kind of facilities? Is so that that another option would be to uh, stand up a, a repo facility. Other central banks have that as a you know fairly uh, normal matter of, of business. Um, it would be available. Again, details matter and the pricing on this uh, matters um, to the extent that it would only be taken up uh, you know, periodically during these moments of uh, liquidity pressure, then you could probably on average have a slightly lower size balance sheet because it's only a temporary facility than the other alternative would just be, let's make sure our ample reserves are truly, truly ample uh, so that there's more cushion and those reserves get distributed out of concentrated places into all of the areas that really need it at uh, reasonable 
uh, pricing. Um, you know, those are choices that we're going to have to make. I think, frankly, the size of the balance sheet is, um, you know, it's not uh, it's not central to monetary policy in the sense that you know lower is always better. Uh, you don't want it to be you know you know too high. But I think that um, um, you know I think making sure that we have an ample size uh, balance sheet just would make uh, us hitting our short-term policy rates easier and us hitting our dual mandate objectives. Very good. Now, the other risk question people have been focused on is the inversion of the curve. They've been bringing the rates down, getting a little bit less inverted, um, right. and it's close. But you know, we're, any cent, how much does that worry you? Do you think that you need to make sure it stays uninverted? Um, or, and what's your sense of that? Um, I think any time that the yield curve um, you know, approaches um, inverted levels and um, you know, is inverted uh, a little bit uh, along some maturities, um, you know, two to 10 years, not so bad, but three months to, to 10 years is, is, is inverted. Um, you have to be nervous given the track record that, uh, you know, it, it, it could well be the case that longer term rates are low because they're uh, pessimistic about the outlook, uh, that policy is a bit tighter than you think, even though the policy, the interest rate might be low. We're at one and three quarters to 2%. But what's important is, well, what's the neutral level? And are we really actually accommodative? Or is it actually restrictive? And we just don't sense that. Um, that's why you start looking at the data. Financial markets tell you some things, but they're looking at the real data as well. And you kind of see consumer strong. Well, that's a good sign. Unemployment is low. You would think inflation should be moving up. But inflation's a little bit low. So, gosh, if we were really accommodative, wouldn't you expect that inflation would be well above 2% and nominal wages would be growing more strongly in an environment of 3.7% unemployment and businesses constantly telling you, can't really find all the workers that I want. And when I bring some people in and they start working out, they move across the street for you know a higher wage, but you know not that much higher. It doesn't seem to be moving into the wage data. And so you, know, you need to be looking at that and, and mindful. And so I agree with, uh, you know, Jim Bullard's comments, uh, you know, on the same topic uh, just the, the other day that, you know, I think this is a time not to necessarily test a theory as to whether or not you've got, you know, exactly the right theory of the, uh, of the yield curve, but just to make sure that you've got an accommodated monetary policy in place. And also being here in Europe at the Bundesbank, there's a lot of focus this week on Draghi exiting. Fiscal policy is his big call that... You know, we've we've done basically what we can do in monetary policy. It needs to pass over the reins of fiscal policy. What's your sense on the coordination that there should be between monetary policy, fiscal policy? Has have we done all we can in monetary policy circles, and it's over to the government? What's your sense? I mean, so you know, so the way that the way that I think about it, and the way that we've um, you know had to experience it over. Um, Geez, the 12 years that I've been president, I became president in uh, September of 2007. And, uh, you know, monetary policy has been called upon to do many things. And certainly during the financial crisis, it's, uh, you know, standard, um, you know, monetary policy responsibilities in order to help support financial conditions to get the economy uh, back and, and growing. I think that uh, you always have to be mindful. What's the state of the rest of the world? What's the state of fiscal policy? And if fiscal policy was really strong, take the 80s. I mean, in the 80s, you know, they had uh, demographic growth, people coming into the workforce, but also, you know, a lot of uh, uh, tax cuts, high government spending. 
And, you know, monetary policy could find a neutral rate at a higher level because the economy was being supported by so many other things and positive productivity. Now, um, you know, fiscal policy has been, um, you know, much more meager at times when we would have benefited from stronger aggregate demand. The debt ceiling crisis in 2011 and the sequester spending limits, you know, indicated that government spending was going to be less. And in that environment where you need more aggregate demand, monetary policy had to do more. And we stayed at the zero lower bound longer. If fiscal policy responded more strongly, and there has just been tax reform and a tax recut, tax cut worth you know one and a half trillion dollars over ten years, and you would think that that would do a lot, but we maybe need more given that uh, uh, more stimulus given that inflation is low. So I mean, I think we have to be mindful of how fiscal policy is behaving. Once you start saying coordinating, I think that's a different um, situation entirely, and so. Um, you know, I'm certainly sympathetic as most central bankers are, which is like if the fiscal authorities would pay it, you know, be helpful for getting the economy going in the same way that I'm trying to be helpful in getting the economy going and keeping inflation down, we could get there more quickly. Interesting. Any closing thoughts or things we haven't touched on on your big picture outlook on things that you're thinking about going into changing policy the rest of this year into next year, outlooks for inflation, unemployment, any other final thoughts? We have covered a lot of territory from money markets to long run policy, a little bit on framework with makeup strategies for inflation. Uh, I think that you know the U.S. economy continues to be in a pretty good place with uh, a number of uncertainties on the horizon, trade policy, strength, weakness of, of foreign growth. And um, it's the resolution of those uncertainties that's going to sort of indicate how well we can navigate forward, decelerating to trend growth, or we suffer uh, a few more headwinds. And so we're going to have to be mindful of the data. Very good. Always data dependent. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie Evans. It's been great having a good conversation there. Thank you. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates.